Hey everyone, I am excited to announce that Esther, Something Hidden, Something Revealed, is now available on Amazon as a side study, Volume H, in the Gospel Feast series. The book of Esther is a mysterious one. As written, it is a book with many contradictions. The name Esther means something hidden. It does contain several historical conundrums and a handful of mysteries. It is the only book in the Bible that never mentions God at all. Why? Many Jews today say that it is just fiction, because they can't find any of the characters mentioned within, historically. And yet, they celebrate the book with a major festival, annually. It is also one of the books that is required reading in the weeks before Passover, every year. Not by God, but by Esther herself. Why do this if you insist the book is just fiction? It is one of the only books that Joseph Smith made no corrections to, although he considered it to be historical. How is any of this possible? Esther reads as an eyewitness account, but then struggles with the simple, logical issues and frequently contradicts itself in some very strange ways. How come? Considering that Esther became the most powerful queen of the world's largest empire, none of this makes any sense. Or does it? Despite the wonderful story, we are left with the puzzling questions. Who was King Ahasuerus? Who was Mordecai? Who was Haman? And actually, who was Esther? The answers may just surprise you. The book is not fiction. And in fact, all of the puzzling contradictions were put in place for a very devious reason, and not by Esther. Join us on this astounding historical reconstruction and be amazed at what Esther really tried to do, and how, had she been able to accomplish what she had tried, your life would be very different right now. You think you know the book of Esther? Are you sure? Let's feast on the Word of God together and see what a woman of God can do when she really puts her mind to it. It also might make an incredible Mother's Day gift for the ladies in your life. Happy Mother's Day. This is the Gospel Feast Podcast for those that need a little meat after the milk. It's time to feast on the Word. Welcome back. We're continuing our studies in the book of Ruth. Now, we have been following along with author and historian Reed Simonson in his book series, The Gospel Feast Series. Now, this book is called Ruth and the Saviors on Mount Zion. And so we have been starting to delve into what the Saviors on Mount Zion means. And apparently that involves good Jewish matchmaking. So that's where we left off. Reed, help us understand how relationships were formed in ancient Israel. The wise Jewish sages say that a man's most prized jewel is his good wife. Ancient Israelite men did rather regard their wives as possessions, but this was a significantly better view than other houses of the families of man. Israelites took care of their possessions. The more prized possession, the better care they took of it. There is an old saying in Israel which may or may not have actually been practiced, but it illustrates the feeling. Happy is the man whose wife must enter his house sideways. It meant that the fatter a man's wife, the better provider he was for her, 
and the better the provider meant, the more he valued her. Israelite women were not forced under the law to marry a man they didn't like. Marriages for boys and girls were arranged, but young men and women would take the public opportunity to check each other out, somewhat discreetly. They were quick to tell their mothers, aunts, and sisters about the potential mates that caught their eye. The women of a family would talk with the women of other families and come up with suggestions and reasons to pressure or persuade their husbands into taking action. Once the women of a family were happy and the fathers duly convinced, the family males would haggle and barter and turn the whole thing into a business mess. In the end, the bride and groom could legally refuse the proposal, although whatever consequences that arose from refusing is as complicated as humanity. I am sure there are stories of young people being pushed into all types of things, but the law nevertheless said that they had the final say and no girl could legally be wed to a man she found repulsive in Israel. Oh, that's interesting. There is also an interesting legal loophole in Israelite law, and this one from the Lord himself. Men sometimes have a problem with what might disrespectively be called damaged goods. This and the fact that many men needed to have a means of support ready for a wife, it was not uncommon for an older man to seek a younger woman. The Lord didn't think this way necessarily. He had many provisions in place to make sure that any daughter of God who wanted a husband and children could have them, perhaps because he was raised by a kindly stepfather with a family of half-brothers and sisters, or perhaps because the sealing powers gave him the right to rearrange families as if they had been originally in that particular order. I don't know, but his law has always allowed a place for everyone to have family in the covenant, by birth or adoption. One of the laws that was given to Israel for Moses was the law of the Leverite marriage. In its simplest form, it merely meant that if a woman had lost her husband, one of his male kin, usually the nearest kinsman, could marry her and any children from that union could legally be considered heirs to the dead man's property or rights. Again, this protected the woman. By giving her legal claim on her husband's male family, she had a respected place with the same people who had promised to uphold her as a mother in Israel. Her children would have claimed too. The men couldn't really complain about it, because under the law, these sons were the sons their missing brethren would have had, had he been able to. God approved, so there wasn't any shame in any of it. Naomi knew all of this. Her rationale in the beginning, trying to turn Ruth away, had been that she was too old to give her another husband from her body. But she was not too old to invoke some of the feminine rights of Israel. The fact that Boaz was a wealthy male kin to her dead husband meant that he was also kin to Ruth's former husband. Boaz, if willing to be Naomi's go-well, could redeem her land and also be a Leverite husband for Ruth. It could be a win for both women, assuming that Boaz was willing to do it. Naomi saw that Boaz was kind to Ruth. Perhaps a little feminine wiles might suggest something better. Tradition holds that Boaz had been recently widowed, and so Naomi turned on her matchmaking skills. Ruth 3.1 Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto Ruth, My daughter, Shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? If you've been following our Gospel Feast series and its emphasis on Eastern thinking, you will remember that it is the celestial power of women to be the place of rest. They are also seen as the nurturing place of transformation. 
When a woman chooses to use these powers as a matriarch in Israel, her celestial fullness combines with the priesthood, and the result is a covenantal binding that cannot be broken by any god, angel, or demon, but only by the couple themselves. Naomi here is being a good Jewish mother prepping the soil, so to speak, to bring about transformative betterment for those within her womanly care. This is a power given to women, and when used righteously, it has moved continents. It is very Jewish, but also very universal, that a woman becomes a nest on the same day that a man becomes an ox. It is joining of the two that gives birth to each other at the moment of joining. Thus, shall I not seek rest for thee? means exactly that. Ruth cannot fulfill her nesting powers without a male present. Until Boaz takes a wife, he has no home to protect. And now is not Boaz of our kindred, with whose maidens thou wast? Behold, he winneth barley to-night in the threshing-floor. Wash thyself therefore, and anoint thee, and put thy raiment upon thee, and get thee down to the floor. But make not thyself known unto the man, until he shall have done eating and drinking. And it shall be, when he lieth down, that thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie, and thou shalt go in, and uncover his feet, and lay thee down, and he will tell thee what thou shalt do. And she said unto her, All that thou sayest unto me I will do. Ruth had already promised Naomi that she would follow her lead in Israel, and here is proof of her word. The plan was a bit sneaky, but an innocent one. Very often with a gentleman, a woman has to risk showing some intention towards him, or he will not reciprocate. In our modern era of sexual harassment, many a poor guy has gotten mixed signals of what means yes and what means no. I'm not convinced that modern girls have a clear intelligence in the matter either. I think the incredible rate of divorce in our modern world testifies that we are not very good at all of this, but either way, Boaz was not the kind of man to make sexual advances, even if he was interested. So Naomi had to bait the hook, so to speak. The plan was simple. Ruth was to make herself drop-dead gorgeous, and then in disguise visit the threshing floor, where the village would be gathered for the threshing. The rabbis say that Ruth altered Naomi's plan a little, and this would be the first time she disobeyed her mother-in-law. Although it's a bit cruel to do it here, let's take a tangent on threshing floors to help us better understand the story and to frustrate the romantics among us. Love it. Let's do it. Threshing floors were very important places in ancient times. Ideally, they were flattened outdoor surfaces, usually circular and paved, but could also be made of smooth stone. Farmers would thresh their grain here and then winnow it. Often, a threshing floor was either owned by the entire village or by a single family. It was important that it be a place exposed to a reliable supply of wind. A good one was a valuable asset. The story tells us that Boaz's threshing floor belonged to the larger family or community. The threshing process worked like this. Harvesters would cut the stalks of grain in the field and gather them into piles. These piles would be taken to the threshing floor, where the stalks were spread out on the flat surface. A simple wooden sled with spikes on the bottom could be pulled over the stalks by oxen or men breaking the heads of the grain off of the stalks. Richer families could often use oxen or horses. But if a family was poor, often the stalks would have to be beaten by the family with sticks. It was hard work. Once successfully trampled, the broken stalks were tossed into the air. The wind would blow the inedible husks, called chaff, away, allowing the heavier grain to fall back to the floor. 
This process is called winnowing. You will remember in our discussion of masculine and feminine forces in Jonah and the Great Plan of Happiness that motion was considered a masculine force, and as such was priesthood. The ancients saw wind as the breath of God. It was a force that moved things, spoke it to creation, and gave life to Adam. It landed the ark in the mountains of Ararat and toppled the Tower of Babel. Wind was a sign of manly power and necessary for life. They further saw wind as the power that separated the wheat, the valuable fruit of a harvest, from the chaff, the worthless, unusable trash. As such, it was the perfect metaphor for God's judgment of man, spoken by the word of his power. Christians know this word as Jesus Christ. The Lord was fond of this symbol. Permutations of this concept can be found all throughout his teachings. Here is a beautiful one that is not well known from the prophet Gad. Gad 2.1 And I had another true vision from God, saying, Turn your face to the east, to the north, to the south, and to the west. Call like a mother bird calls to her fledglings, and say, Four corners of the earth, hearken to the word of the Lord. Thus saith your Lord, who sits and dwells above the cherubim, Give, give, give to me, take out, take out, take out of you, my seed that I have sown in you, O four corners of the earth, for the time of the harvest has come. Soon I shall collect my seed from my threshing floor, and my threshing floor shall be holy, for no impure seed shall be found there. For before now my seed was mixed with the lentils and the barley and the black cumin and the beans and the gourds. And in the latter days the sower shall be a true messenger, and the seed he sows shall be my true seed, and from this seed shall all the land be blessed. I love this. Remember that after the barley harvest comes the wheat harvest. Gad said that would be in the latter days. You are the wheat, unless you are a tare. Don't be a tare. That's right. As the threshing floor was the place where good was separated from bad, or in other words, truth was separated from error, the threshing floor came to symbolize the holy temple. It is wonderful to note that it was just such a floor, the famous threshing floor of Arana, that King David purchased as the site of the Biet Hamidash, the House of Holiness, also known as Solomon's Temple. I love this story, and it is not well known. One day, Satan decided to tempt Israel to see if he could bring about the curse that Samuel had placed on the throne. He went to King David and whispered in his ear that he would never know the true might of Israel unless he numbered them. Now the Lord had commanded that no numbering was to be done since the people were the Lord's, and he already knew the number of his own. Satan persisted. As king, was not David the commander of the army? A commander had to know the number of his men in his kingdom. What if he needed to call them up for battle? The prophet Gad recorded the event, and this is one of my favorites. And King David said to Joab the captain and to the princes of the people, Go now through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, and number the people, and return and report to me, that I might know the number. And Joab said to the king, May the Lord increase the house of Israel the hundredfold. And may the eye of the Lord God watch over them all, for they are the servants of the Lord. Why, therefore, my king, do you require this thing? Why would you trespass against Israel when our God has said that Israel shall be a multitude without number? 
Nevertheless, the king commanded Joab and the captains, and they went from the presence of the king and numbered the people of Israel. And when they had gone throughout the land, they returned to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. But Joab did not number the tribe of Levi or Benjamin, because the king's word was abominable to Joab. And Joab returned and reported the number, 800,000 valiant men and 300,000 men who drew a sword. And the Lord God was sore displeased with the numbering and sent Gad the seer to David, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I am the king of Israel, and I am their portion. I am their avenger, their fortress, and their might. Thou dost know that it is not with the sword of men or the spear of the arm of flesh that I will save my people. I have no need of a man of valor who draws the sword. For this is the boast of the wicked who stand upon their boast with armies of mighty warriors. You shall not be like they are. I, the Lord, am a lone warrior, and I need none besides me to fight my battles. Why would you do this evil to number my people? For this insult I will strike Israel, and you will know that I am the Lord who stands in the midst of all the earth. And David's heart sunk within him for what he had done, and he cried to the Lord, I have sinned a great sin before the Lord. O Lord, I beg you take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted the fool of the court. And David rose up early in the morning, and the word of the Lord was waiting for him. For Gad the seer had come and said, Thus saith the Lord, Go and tell David, I offer you three choices. Choose you one that I will do unto you. And so Gad came to David and told him all the Lord had commanded him, saying, Shall four years of famine come upon the land of Israel, three upon the land of Judah? Or will that you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you, and you fall by their sword? Or shall there be three days of the sword of the Lord as a pestilence in your land while the angel of the Lord goes forth destroying the land of Israel? Choose, I will return and tell the Lord who sent me. Oh, what a horrible thing to have to choose. David in a stupid moment had forgotten who the real king in Israel was. But David was a man after the Lord's own heart, and his answer is both brilliant and instructive still. And David said to Gad, Mine is a terrible dilemma. I prefer to fall upon the Lord, for I know he is a God of mercy. Only let us not fall into the hand of man. Brilliant. David knew that the Lord had a tender heart. He suspected that if he could just get beneath his wing for a moment, his mercy would overtake his anger. Moses knew this too when he refused to leave the Lord alone when he was brooding about the destruction of Israel over the golden calf. It's in John's revelation, too. Oh, that we can remember this, when next we see a blood-red moon or stars falling from the sky at the end of days. Run to the Lord. And so the Lord sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. And as he was in the very act, the Lord looked and had pity on his people and said to the destroying angel, when he had reached the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite, Stay your hand. It is enough. And David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between the heaven and the earth, having his drawn sword in his hand stretched out above Jerusalem. And David and the elders, who were clothed in sackcloth, fell 
upon their faces. And David cried out to God, Is it not I that commanded thy people to be numbered? Is it not I that sinned against thee? But these sheep, O Lord, what is it they have done? O Lord, my God, let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Only turn your anger from this, your people. Shall not the judge of all the earth judge right? And the Lord heard and said to David, These have hearkened unto Satan against you to number them when they said, We will be like the heathen nations. I am a God of justice. I return their prideful hearts unto their own bosoms. For a broken heart I shall not always despise. And the angel of the Lord came to Gad and told him to say to David that he should go up, build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite, where the Lord God was holding back his drawn sword in mercy. Any bet this was Gabriel? Other than him, only Moses would have dared to be so gutsy. And David hearkened to the words of Gad, which he spoke to him in the name of the Lord. And Arana was looking and saw the king ascend the floor with his four sons. Now Arana was threshing wheat upon the floor, and when he saw David, he bowed his face to the ground. Then David said to Arana, Sell me this threshing floor, that I might build an altar upon it to the Lord. You shall ask of me the full price, that the plague of the Lord might be stayed from the people. And Arana said to the king, Nay, my lord, you shall take it. Let my king do whatsoever is good in his eyes. See, I will make a gift to you of my oxen for the burnt offering and these threshing tools for the wood. Here is my wheat. Take it for a meal offering to the Lord. I give it all to thee freely. But David said, Nay, but I will verily buy it from thee for its full price. For I cannot take that which be thine as an offering for the Lord and offer him that which cost me nothing. So David gave to Arana six hundred gold shekels for the floor, fifty silver shekels for the oxen, and measured the same by weight. And David built there an altar unto the Lord, and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings, and called upon the Lord there. And the Lord answered David with fire from heaven upon the altar of the burnt offering, upon the floor of threshing, to light it ablaze. And the Lord commanded his angel, to put back his sword into the sheath thereof. And the plague was stayed from Israel. At that time, when David saw that the Lord God had answered him with mercy upon the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite, and that the Lord was no longer angry, then David pledged to offer his sacrifices there forevermore. And David refused from that day forth to ever go and sacrifice unto the Lord in the high place at Gibeon, where the altar of the Lord and the tabernacle of Moses dwelt. For David was both terrified and weakened by the sight of the sword of the angel of the Lord, which he had seen above the people. And thus it was at this place David sought to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem as a house of his mercy forever. It was on this same site that Abraham was commanded to offer his son Isaac in sacrifice, and where Jacob had his dream about a ladder ascending into heaven. You will remember that when Jacob awoke, he proclaimed that he had fallen asleep at Bethel and didn't know it. Bethel means house of God in Hebrew. Beth is house, and of course you know El is the father god, Elohim. The threshing floor was not just a place of judgment. It was also a place of blessing and harvest. 
harvest for the Lord in that he could look upon the fruits of his labors, symbolically the successful salvation of you and me. Blessing for us in that after the difficult trials of living through the thrashing and struggles of this world, we emerge as a kernel of pure grain, separated from the husk of the natural man or the silly woman laden with sin. This is the meaning of the Lord's promise of Moses in the book of Numbers. Numbers 18.30 Therefore thou shalt say unto them, When ye have heathed the best thereof from it, then it shall be counted unto the Levites as the increase of the threshing floor, and as the increase of the winepress. And this marvelous promise to the Latter-day Saints and the blood of Israel in the days of the last outpouring, here called the days of the latter rain. Joel 2.23 Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. Note that this latter rain in the latter days would come in the first month. In Joel's day, the first month was April. April 6th, perhaps? And the floors shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, the cankerworm and the caterpillar, and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. And ye shall eat in plenty, and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, that hath dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be ashamed. This beautiful promise is literally fulfilled in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in our day. No sooner did the Lord deem to send Latter-day rain to refresh his people than the overflowing of blessings, ordinances, and knowledge tumbled from on high. Our desert refuge has blossomed as a rose, and the home of the saints nestled against the holy temples up and down the mountain communities would bring tears to the eyes of our ancient forebearers who pled with the Lord for our day. Israel lives in the fullness of times, and in our happiness we have earnestly tried to spread the gospel, unashamedly declaring that we know the love of the Lord. He is our Goel. Isaiah 41.13 For I the Lord thy God will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. Fear not, ye men of Israel, I will help thee, saith the Lord, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I will make thee a new sharp threshing instrument, having teeth. Thou shalt thresh the mountains, and beat them small, and thou shalt make the hills as chaff. Thou shalt fan them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the whirlwind shall scatter them. And thou shalt rejoice in the Lord, and shalt glory in the Holy One of Israel. We have beat the mountains into our footstools, and cut the granite rock with our teeth, carving great blocks of gray-white stone to build him a house to rest his head among us. The wind of the Lord's power has blown so many of our trials and enemies away. Our trial now is one of remembrance. We must remember all that the Lord has given our people, and strive to live with gratitude. We must not forget him in our prosperity, and we must not let go of him in our coming days of trial. We must not trust in the arm of flesh, but in the Lord. If we remember, our blessings will abound, and our safety will be guaranteed in the end. The Jews have always understood that the temple is a place where brothers embrace and sisters nurture one another. We of the latter reign understand so much more of what they longed for and so faithfully preserved. The fact 
that they have numerous remnants of truth left over from the former reign, which only makes sense within the context of the Restoration, is a continual joy to me. The Holy Temple, being the house of love, when man and wife and God meet face to face, and arm in arm, is wonderful. God is love. This kind of imagery is the perfect return to our tale of romance. You will remember that Naomi has dolled up Ruth, and given her instructions to go in disguise to the threshing floor. She is to find the place where Boaz intends to sleep for the night. And most important of all, remember which man is him. And that will have to wait for our next episode. We will get back to Ruth and Boaz on the threshing floor. And until our next podcast, may the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. (laughs) 